0: Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, unfindability, predictive processing, psychedelics, the rings of power, Vajrayana, and much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with Rosa Lewis. Rosa Lewis is a mystic and meditation teacher whose teaching combines Buddhist emptiness, shadow work, tantric embodiment, the archetypal realm, mysticism, and a radically new way of relating to the heart. Her approach to spirituality involves healing the trauma or embracing the darkness that exists in all of us. Rosa helps people uncover and nourish whatever it is that most wants to come alive within them in order to create a more joyful presence in the world. You can learn more about Rosa on her website at rosalewis.co.uk. And now, I give you a conversation with Rosa Lewis. Rosa, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thanks. We're here in this room at the Alembic in Berkeley, California, and it's not really a recording studio, so you can hear it's got a funny sound. But this is the best we could do for doing an in person interview, which I haven't done in like two and a half years. Ah, nice. Yeah, super fun. Super fun, right? They've all been on some kind of internet application just because of COVID. So we're COVID free enough to talk face to face. So it's a real pleasure to have you here. Yeah, it's super nice. So, Rosa, Lewis, please introduce yourself.
1: Thanks. Yeah, I'd say I'm a mystic and meditation teacher been on quite an epic sort of spiritual journey of my own where I've had a lot of very intense and different experiences and I think part of what's come through is the importance of just talking about them in a very open and public way and as a result of that I guess people who've had similar experiences or who resonate with that have ended up finding me and just becoming a bit of a sort of hub for people interested in these different aspects of the spiritual path and I think particularly some of the areas that I really am passionate about are things like including the darkness in how we relate to spirituality and also including the imaginal aspect of our experience
0: amongst other things all very fascinating topics. I'm curious, when you say you've had an epic spiritual journey, of course, that makes me want to say, can you describe a little bit of that for us?
1: Yeah, sure. It started in my early mid-20s. At that time, I just had no spiritual background, no context. So I was just sort of like having all these experiences and having nowhere to categorize them. So things like big heart openings or energetic experiences lots of like synchronicities emerging and the place that I found that made the most sense of it was some really deep psychotherapeutic work that was also somatic embodied energetic and took that as my path for quite a while got very interested in Jung and his path and how his psychosis slash experiences of the archetypal realm were kind of part of his spiritual experiences and just really threw myself down that path, I guess, and embraced everything that came
0: up. What was your main method of following Jung's teachings?
1: Yeah, so the psychotherapeutic work that I'd done was built from his teachings, so it used archetypes. It was very much like shadow work and integrating the shadow, and that kind of showed me a way of relating to the world where nothing was fundamentally bad it was kind of everything was good but had become a shadow in some way and so it was about relating to the layers of suffering, challenge and just integrating them in my life and in my own internal experience just sort of that being the process almost kind of like picking things up one at a time and being like what in this needs to be seen, felt, loved understood.
0: And were you including things like art, like drawing and dancing and stuff as we sometimes do in Jungian? Or was it almost all just active imagination, closing your eyes and going in?
1: Yeah, it was more the kind of somatic embodied sense of just really feeling things and being with things. Later, there became more expression and including art and music and different bits as part of integration of the soul realm and the imaginal. But it started as a very kind of like somatic embodied approach.
0: I really like how you're describing the quality of accepting everything that's arising, right? Like nothing is cast out, it's all somehow included. I'm putting words in your mouth at this point, but doesn't have to be somehow redeemed. It's already excellent the way it is.
1: Yeah, the inclusion element is one of the strongest forces in my practice and I guess at my teaching now and it's really like the translation of inclusion as opposed to equanimity it's like an active acceptance of everything and like you say sometimes that means when you accept it there's some purification or transformation or change but also just acceptance around like things just being as, as they are
0: good so please continue
1: so then I introduced the Buddhist meditation aspect
0: to this Approach. What lineage or what technique or how did you do that?
1: Through reading Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha.
0: Oh, okay. So Daniel Ingram brought yes. you to Buddhism. Yes.
1: yes. <laughs> I think part of the reason that made it accessible to me as well was because it was talking about the energetic stuff and the deep concentration and the far end of things that can come up, which were already present for me. So Something clicked where I was like, oh, this is like part and parcel of the meditative path. So it opened that door and then equally listening to this podcast <laughs> just opened up some doors of, "Ah, oh, I get it. It's like getting in touch with these different things. It's not kind of like one thing that is trying to have no thoughts yeah
0: so glad there's like a feedback loop happening here where the podcast is now coming back on itself and influencing the teachers a little bit that's fascinating
1: yeah totally it's really cool so then that completely opened my mind and just really engaged me with buddhism and the more kind of like mindfulness meditation aspect something clicked i was like oh i see how that feeds into this worldview that i have and i started practicing keeping that sort of Jungian somatic experiencing shadow work practice alive but almost like bringing that into a more formal meditation practice and that just sort of like super speeded everything up and I went on a few short retreats and again that rocketed everything because I'm just a very sort of sensitive absorbent being and being in that hyper-focused environment with loads of other people it's just like being on psychedelics for me (laughs) and then at one point my conscious state had just been unraveling few years by that point i fell off a cliff from a state of consciousness perspective where i was really in the state of just what was present in the moment and zero concepts or perspectives outside of anything
0: and was that relatively pleasant experience for some people it can be kind of terrifying
1: Yeah, it was like when things were good, it was amazing. And when things were bad, it was terrible. There was just no coping or barrier between me and experience. It was just like no distance, just fully with whatever the thing was present in that moment.
0: Yeah. And so, how did you work with that?
1: At that point, the thing had just taken over.
0: Hmm.
1: So, I'd up to that point spent quite a lot of time in trance states, like doing strange things and (laughs) following the thing it's almost like the sort of pull the intuitive pull of life force just took over and everything was just kind of like an explosion of here's a thing in a moment here's another thing in a moment here's another thing in a moment and yeah there was a kind of warrior archetype or like tantric approach to almost just like being the container for the stuff to be expressed through or to impact and just like being with the impact and allowing it to purify or impact me or show me something and it was just my purpose to go through it
0: and so after working with that for a while where did that then lead to
1: Yeah, so there was a few months where I was really just off the grid of normal consciousness. And then I sort of started to come back around and get a bit more of a sense of meaning and story and purpose. There was just such a clear sense of some of this stuff is like super important. Things like relating to darkness, including it. Things like just bringing that sense of love and strong, open heart to experience things like the combination of really including the embodied and the emptiness in the same practice. And it felt like I just wanted to tell these things as a story and kind of bring them out through sharing my own experiences and also teaching and various other things.
0: So several times you pointed to the darkness. So... Can you unpack that a little bit? Like, how did that come up for you and how did you work with that?
1: Yeah, it's such a big topic. Well, I think it's interesting because one of the things that's coming up is just appreciating, for example, death's anger as a perfect expression. <laughs> that's very cool, very inspiring. Because there's a way in which it can be the stuff that is difficult and painful. It's like challenge in life and anything painful, but there's also the way in which it can be the really like rich stuff. So... I've always been quite interested in, like, the death and the darkness in that way. It's, like, actually quite juicy and compelling to me. And I think maybe a more relatable example for people is, like, sexuality, where it can be quite shut down in people. or we don't talk about that. But it can also be this sort of rich part of experience. Still kind of, like, retains some aspect of it being dark. It doesn't have the same shutting off and, like, judgment to it. To me, I think when I talk about the darkness these days, it's more in that realm of what's in the subconscious or in that rich part of experience like sadness or death or sexuality or these other parts that relates to things that people cut off or disown in in some way.
0: So not just darkness, but also the Jungian shadow. Yes. Yeah, which could include what we might conventionally think of as light things, non-dark things, but Mm -hmm. they're being shut out. Certainly these days, I've noticed that working with some of these, let's say, more intense, more difficult, usually considered negative emotions actually can be the most wonderful material, not like silver lining material, but actual just directly opening material of all right? It can be so powerful. And I think it's, of course, very natural and very understandable, but also a little bit paradoxical that, of course, people avoid it like crazy. And so how do you work with that if you're talking to someone or you're working with someone and you just notice that total avoidance of that happening?
1: Yeah, I agree. It feels to me the fastest way to transform something is almost like to go through the most difficult bit because that's the bit that people are avoiding and so if it's like if people can be with the thing that it's hard to be with then suddenly that can transform the experience and I think that there's also the risk with all of these things that they're being there's like a sense of compassion where it's always like ah this this person doesn't want to be with this thing because for a reason it's like they've learned it's not safe or overwhelming and there's good reasons to that things are difficult to be with and those are real so there's a sense of like respect for that with people when I'm teaching or working with people that these things need to be treated carefully
0: yes there may be very good reason they are avoiding that and yes. need to continue to do that for a while for
1: yeah sure. I guess it's always just a sort of invitation to step in and open something up with people and knowing in myself that I've open something I can hold something and providing that as a safety of like hey you know sadness is totally welcome here I can hold that I'm not gonna freak out or it's like being able to be the safe place for for someone to come and there's almost like two aspects of it I think one is taking away people's self-judgment or inner critic around like sadness is bad or something I shouldn't feel it and it's almost just like That can be a very quick change in people where you just go, actually, anything you're feeling is very welcome. And if they can really get that transmission, that can be transformative in and of itself. And then, yeah, for bigger stuff, it's like having the care to make sure that they're supported and safe and feel held enough to open these things up.
0: Something that I find hard to communicate is the wonderful, rich potential of going into this if one is ready for it. It's interesting when I invite people in to that space and what's possible there. Most of the time, they don't want to do it. And actually, there's a lot of pushback and why it's a bad idea and so on, which is fine. As we are saying, we need to be careful. But I think it's very fascinating that it's so hard, at least for me, to communicate what's good about it in such a way that people can dig in and really start to go there. And then there's other times when people just light up about that idea. So I'm curious what your experience with that is and if you have any ways of talking about it or describing it that you find people respond to as an invitation more openly.
1: Hmm. Yeah, great question. I think because I talk about this so much, I attract people who are the people who get lit up by the idea. <laughs> Everyone's like, give me the darkness.
0: It's one of the advantages of having a death song. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a sense of like, the way out is through. Yeah. Yeah. Almost like people won't believe it until they've really gone through it themselves. I feel like if I embody that and model it, and the more that people embody and model that, it's like people start to see like, oh, yeah, okay, the way into presence and open-heartedness and resilience and joy is by going through the dark stuff is like meeting it I guess the first time that I did it in a really strong way was in a shadow work therapy group retreat setting and there was something about the facilitators who were holding the space where I was just like oh this person has something in them that is like really powerful I can just sort of pick up on it I wouldn't have been able to put it into words, but it's just they've got the kind of resilience in their being and just space holding capacity. I think that inspired me to really go into my own stuff and trust the container and be willing to really go somewhere that maybe I wouldn't have gone elsewhere.
0: Good. So talk to me about the imaginal. How'd you get involved in it? Of course, coming from the Jungian world, I'm sure you started out there basically, but it's especially in mindfulness world, it's usually kind of illegal, except for Burbea students.
1: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was going to say, Berbea was a big inspiration. Again, like opened up a lot of stuff. It almost just became so much that the world is so inherently imaginal in my experience, that I can't ignore it. It's kind of like the thing that's in the forefront of my experience. And so that that's kind of become how I teach primarily. And yeah, it feels related as well to the stuff around the darkness. Because one of the best things about the imaginal is if everything is just creative expression you don't put things into the good and bad categories. You don't put things into the shadow. It's just part of the unfolding in the same way that when you're watching a movie, you can kind of make space for really sad stuff and connect with it or like really violent stuff or, you know, whatever. There's space for everything in that creative expression. And that's really the power of the imaginal to me. It's that when we get into a space that is safe, like a meditation retreat center or a meditation at home, then almost like look at experience through the filter of the imaginal. Then it's like, oh, whatever's here is just a creative expression of the universe expressing itself.
0: Good. And so when you work with people, doing your shared imaginal practice. How do you start to bring that in and what's available there and what are you after?
1: Yes, so shared imaginal practice, it's a relational practice. So the classic format of it is done in groups of three. And one person is being guided into their inner world through the imaginal. And there's a way in which it very much incorporates the sense of the body. So it always starts with kind of describing the sense of the body and the experience of that it includes the emotional realm it includes concepts and ideas and it's almost like looking at everything through the lens of the imaginal so there's a way in which in normal life all these different parts of our beings can be being pulled in different directions like the body's tired the emotions are one thing the mind thinks it needs to be doing another we're like running around being pulled in different directions with shared imaginal practice it's like ah we're just creating a space to be really like present and aligned and open and with experience and then just giving each person that space to really connect to that experience through the lens of the imaginal so then it's like asking questions about what's unfolding in their experience and guiding people and asking about like what images are coming up or what certain words like evoke in their being and how they would describe it either energetically or imaginally or something with a bit more of a creative feel rather than going into the normal logical linear way of relating and speaking and understanding things
0: and are you ever taking them into the modality of a sensory deconstruction of those images a la mindfulness practice, or is that not the direction?
1: It can and does happen, definitely. There's kind of two things. With shared imaginal practice specifically, it's just giving space for whatever comes up to express itself. It's very like open-handed, very much just almost showing each person that their experience is just the universe emerging. So there's almost like no intention with it. It's very open. And then when I've done more one-to-one guidance with people, we usually start by having a conversation of like, ah, what's coming up? What are you interested in? Where do we want to go? And then we might pick a direction. And so with some people, we've really gone into kind of like emptiness of different aspects of experience or non-duality or picking up different parts of experience and using the imaginal to get more in touch or explore them more deeply.
0: What's most exciting for you about Shared Imaginal Practice, or what do you love about it? I love it
1: because it came from a place where being in a timeless, imaginal world that had that sort of dreamlike quality to it, and I was like, oh, maybe I could show people how to be in this world. and this way of being I'm talking about has quite a lot of strong benefits to it so I was like yeah I think probably people would quite enjoy it as well and yeah that's worked people really like it much more kind of like deep connection available and able to relate from that space so to me it feels a bit just like hanging out in a cool nice experience and I think there's kind of like a nice moment often where people see something new and they're like oh, there's like a different way of being in the world. And that moment to me is always really nice. It's just like opening up possibility for people and showing them something new.
0: And so you're just intuitively following your own experience and sharing that with people. At least that's what I'm hearing. And so currently, where is that going like for you? How's it unfolding these days?
1: Yeah, good question. The main joy in life for me is collaboration and creativity so it's almost kind of like working with people on creative projects and so one of the things I'm doing is I've we've got a decentralized collaboration of people who are all interested in the imaginal so either people who've come across it through my work or people who are already working on their own in their own realm of it and with exploring how this can be used in the world so that kind of moment that I was talking about of like showing people something new, there's a way in which the like depth and power of that is immense. It's just like there's this completely new aspect of experience which opens up and it can make collaboration easier and more fun. It can make relating at a deeper level more possible. And so then the question is, how can that be used not just as a thing of itself in the way that I'm teaching it, but how could it be used in, for example, business to solve problems or explicitly in therapy to unlock new healing or how could it be explicitly used in academia to research experience or to fuel a different way of understanding the world. There's kind of like all these questions of like, oh, cool, we're all in touch with the power of the imaginal and in particular when the imaginal is used in the relational field. So it's a big question mark exploration, fun collective of people exploring together.
0: How it applies to all these different fields. Yeah. So what is the biggest challenge that's arising?
1: The biggest challenge, I would say, is that the existing systems in the world are so embedded in rational thinking in capitalism in all these very fixed ways of looking that the shift into this way of being is huge yeah that feels like the biggest challenge it's like huh this is gonna need a lot of force behind it
0: so i'm hearing you saying that basically societally people are stuck in the rational And so does your shared imaginal practice help to crowbar people out of that modality or invite them into something in a gentle way? Or is it only for people who are already out there floating in the imaginal dream realms?
1: Yeah, totally. No, the practice is very good at opening for people. Yes. And for me, it feels very spiritual. And I can talk about it very easily in those ways but it can also be talked about and packaged in a way where you don't need it to touch into the mystical stuff and it can still be impactful so there's a way in which it could be put into business settings and still do the main thing that it needs to do
0: good so it can work in settings like business or these types of things what about in the meditation setting how specifically would you work with the imaginal to Help someone to unlock their meditation practice.
1: Yeah. So I guess one of my deepest ethoses with meditation and teaching is that I'm showing someone their experience versus giving them a state that I think that they should be in. And it's almost like the imaginal is one of the keys to unlocking that for people because there's a way in which your experience is inherently imaginal in the way that everything we feel everything we think everything has this sort of unique creative quality inside it and so if you can show people that an inherent part of their experience almost is the key to unlocking a part where they're like validating their experience a lot more and connecting with it more deeply and that feels very important
0: Something we run into, I'm sure you're running into it quite often, is basically a sense of self-criticism or self-hatred. It's really present in people and seems to be one of the major things sort of blocking up their practice. And how do you work with that in this way?
1: Yeah, so I think there's a couple of ways. One is that the imaginal can almost like just cut through it because if people can really get into that creative way of expressing there's no right or wrong so it just takes out the need for an inner critic but if that's really strong you can also bring that in to the practice so either in the sense of that can become part of the expression so like in the sense of an energy or archetypally you can kind of bring that part in and yeah let it express itself as part of the flow of what's happening in experience and then taking out that level of resistance to it or fear of it that kind of takes its charge away and suddenly it's just like oh that's just one part of the flow of my experience that's happening rather than it being sort of dictator to people that can override how they feel about themselves or the practice or...
0: I think it's super interesting that you're saying you don't have a particular state you're guiding people into. And I, I respect that. I understand, you know, people's journey is their journey, right? It doesn't have to look a certain way. At least that's how I would say it. On the other hand, based on your own experience, how do you guide someone into going what you would consider deeper? So there's still sort of a guidance there. So mm-hmm. how do you work with that?
1: Yeah, it's almost like there's meta meta states
0: that's a one t
1: one t yeah so on a heart level it's like the meta state is open so it's kind of like the idea that generally it feels better if people are open-hearted so we're moving towards that and then it's almost like irregardless of content or state or Yeah, if difficult stuff is coming up, we're opening to it. And the same on like a body level, it's like presence. So it's really about being able to be in the body, be present, be here kind of in your life. Yeah, and then on a mind level, it's like having more emptiness, more sense of nebulosity, of experience. And then on a soul level, it's like being able to just flow with whatever's coming up and they will feed each other and there's a sense with all of those dates it's like being with your experience rather than being away from it.
0: Rosa thank you so much for coming on the show today it's been a real pleasure to speak with you.
1: Thanks it's been super fun.